Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clubo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. Hey Cliff, how's it going? It's going all right, Bobo. How are you doing today, sir? Oh, great. It's a good day. Anything unusual going on you want to share? Um, it is your life. I know there's something <laughs> unusual going on. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty uh, just a boring standard day. Or not standard, I guess non-standard day. Pretty boring. Yeah, so it's a boring Bobo day. Which <laughs> yeah. I don't know, you know what that means. Like I don't know, it's, no fires in the house or earthquakes <laughs> shaking down the house or you're relatively free of tsunamis today. Yeah. Yeah. You haven't lost you haven't lost any $1000 bills while going to the gas station or something? <laughs> no. But um, I just got back from going to Montana. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. You went out there for a little Bigfoot excursion. Is that correct? Yeah, I was. Uh, I got in contact with these this uh, couple out there, and they're right on the border uh, outside of Eureka, Montana, up in the very northwest corner of Montana. And I went out there, and it was it was kind of dead. Uh, there they had tracks in the ground. I was the minute I went to get some tracks, and then they had it was thawing and. It was, you know, heating up in the day and then freezing at night, and you know what that does to the ground. And then the herd, the, the herd had been moving back and forth, but the herd of what? Elk. Elk. The elk herd. Okay. okay. Yeah. And then the night, bef- then I, I was going to get there late at night, like about an hour after sunset, because I, I didn't, I was pushing it, getting there on time. Well, I left your house that day. I spent the night halfway at your place, then jammed up, and uh, I was going to get there after dark because I, I didn't factor in the time change. I was like, oh man, I wanted to get there, you know, because you don't want to get into a, you don't want to pull in at night and then, you know, a new vehicle and new person. So I thought, I'll just wait till the next day. And then that night, a big herd of elk moved through and mowed down the prints that were still there. Yeah, that's one of those things. That's Bigfooting, you know. That's why that's why we named our Bigfoot model here in the museum Murphy, because Murphy, everybody knows Murphy's law: if something can go wrong, it will go wrong. So clearly, Murphy must be a Sasquatch because it screws everything up in my life. I know. Yeah, and I was up there, and so I was like, well, shoot, I'm here. Um, Joe and uh, Tammy, and you were close to there. So Joe Hauser and Tammy Fox, they own the Montana Vortex. Oh, the Montana Vortex folks, right. Yep, and I, I knew Dave uh, Polides had moved up there, and I was, you know, he's always invited me to visit. You know, he's like, you got to visit, you got to visit. So I'm like, all right, I'm up here. May as well, you know, check out the Vortex and see Dave and check this place out. And I uh, met Dave and Joe at the Vortex. And they gave me a tour, and dude, I thought it was gonna be some hokey roadside attraction, like not, you know, just you know, you know, those kind of roadside attractions, well, yeah, yeah, like the mystery spot down in California, like all the, those sort of things where you watch water go uphill and these uh, roadside attraction things, right? Which are optical illusions, usually, you know? Yeah, usually, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. It's like slanted houses. That's why when we went out to 
vortex, the first thing I saw was a slanted house. I'm like, oh gosh, just optical illusions. Yeah, so I went over to the Vortex and met Joe and uh, Dave and Tammy. And we actually have Dave with us today. Dave Paulides, uh, pretty well known for the missing 411 books and videos and movies he's made. His YouTube channel is real popular. And he's a busy guy. I mean, he puts out a book a year. He puts out multiple videos. So we were lucky to get him. And welcome, Dave Paulides, to the show. Welcome, Dave. Hey, thanks, guys. Uh, pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you on. I mean, you're you're high demand. You've got a, a booming YouTube channel. Like you, I mean, I know how busy you are because just this. I spent the entire morning putting out your books on the museum shelves because I just put a big order in with you. And man, you you take up more than an entire shelf in my bookstore. Jeez, <laughs> oh, sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. We can we can't keep them on the shelves. And everybody comes in looking for them because you go to Amazon and they're like 60, 80 bucks sometimes. Like holy smokes. But, you know, you go to your store online or here in the North American Bigfoot Center, you can get them for the regular price. So, But, man, you are a prolific author. It's ridiculous. So uh, thanks for that. Well, unfortunately, the world I live in has a lot to write about, which is missing people. And it's uh, it's kind of a sad existence because they just keep coming in. And uh, every story, there there's linkage to other things that I've written about in the past and for the people that don't know, it's I, I write about missing people with an unusual twist to them. And after doing this for 10 years, and I probably read close to seven or 8,000 missing person reports, I found, found linkage between these cases. And so I don't write about every case, but as long as it has this linkage to it, I'll research it, research it, write about it, and try to go out on it. And the YouTube channel, uh, ours, uh, I Missing Project, uh, I've, I've gone out probably at least 20 or 30 times and recorded on scene where these things have happened. So, and uh, I try to put up a, a video at least twice a week. Um, I've got one coming up with our partner here, Bobo, uh, very soon. And that was, that was an entertaining interview to say the least. Huh, I had a good time. Good. That's why Bobo's my co-host. I don't have to do anything cool. He just pipes in and everybody laughs and, it, you know, it's great. That's a great business <laughs> model, Cliff. That's awesome. <laughs> it's better for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dave, do you get – you know, I just was re-watching some of your movies I hadn't seen them since they come out. And I'm, I'm just thinking, like, what an emotional, draining thing you do. And do you get, like, PTSD from this? I mean, you're dealing with all these traumatized families and they're looking to you for hope. And you do, you know, help – help them out but is, is that, it must be hard so so people know i've written i've done two different documentaries and one's called missing 411 and then one is called missing 411 the hunted and right now for your audience they can watch them for free on youtube movies and the latest one missing 411 the hunted was the highest rated crime related documentary of the year so uh, i've gotten some pretty good ratings on it and they talk about people that have disappeared and their story and kind of the feelings of law enforcement in regards to their disappearance. And I think that the brutal honesty that law enforcement gives these stories will stun people. And uh, you're, you're right, guys. It, it is a very, very draining, emotionally packed topic because many of these people have no closure they have very little assistance from law enforcement. 
a lot of people just want to put these stories on the shelf and forget them, but the families don't want to do that. They want some publicity for it. They, they want to understand what happened. They want to understand why law enforcement does nothing. I've also done a, a two-hour special for the History Channel called Vanished. You can watch it on Amazon right now. It's owned by History, but you can watch it, Vanished. And in there, I met several families, and you can kind of see the interaction. These people are ecstatic that anybody cares. And when you understand the story and you understand the person, it brings you into that realm where, why, why are we understanding this better? Why aren't we trying to find these people? Why did we just give up? A lot of unanswered questions. Now, you come from a law enforcement background, if I remember correctly. And um, I know my, my, my father was a L.A. County sheriff. Um, and one of the things that he never did was bring his work home with him, so to speak. There was a, a wall he put up emotionally between what he had to deal with at work and what he had to deal with at home. Because my brother and I were kind of handfuls sometimes, as one might imagine, but nothing like what he had to deal with at work. You know, um, do you did you feel or do you feel that um, your background kind of helps you separate the two into categories or little you know containers to kind of well th this is a professional thing and of course it has to touch you I know it did I can, I saw it in my father but um, at the same time it, 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 my, my my dad um, compartmentalized it pretty well do you feel that you have a coping mechanism or anything like that to those ends so when you're in law enforcement and let's say you're LA sheriff or like with me I was a San Jose policeman you go to work. You take your uniform off, you come home. And that's kind of the separation point. But in my world, I'm, I'm in my office all the time working on projects. I can't leave. You know, I, if I go upstairs, take a shower, I'm back in the office, checking emails, doing work. So unfortunately, I really can't. And I have people in my family say, you know, I, I carry it on my shoulder 24-7. Because there's a lot of lot of people that need assistance, and uh, it's nothing that I can leave. And when I go to different areas of the United States, I can almost go to any area, and I know cases where people have disappeared. I mean, heck, Cliff, in your backyard, right around Mount Hood, I did a video uh, two weeks ago about three guys who disappeared. So, like I said, I could go anywhere, and and find people that are related to the work I've done. Yeah, they keep coming up, man. Uh, I, I think I just saw something, well, certainly in the last month, I have a pretty elastic sense of time, you know, maybe, perhaps not as elastic as Bobo, but, you know, I have a hard time with, with how, how long ago things were. Um, but I, I think just within the last month, I saw another person or two going missing uh, on Mount Hood. Mount Hood swallows them up. So There's something about that area where you're in not just mount hood but i would say in a 40 mile 40 mile radius from there that is it's interesting and uh i mean the, the oldest case i know about on mount hood it's an older case uh back in 95 a guy named robert budlong uh, b-u-d-l-o-n-g i'm sorry kenneth budlong uh, he disappeared up on the mountain. He'd summited that mountain 20 times. And he told his family that he was going to do it again. He was staying on the northwest side of the mountain at about 7,000 feet. They found his camp when they started looking for him. They don't know what happened to him. They don't know where he went. Searched for him for a week and a half. And heck, it's been 25 years and they haven't found anything of him. And 
people have to remember something that, yeah, your, your body will deteriorate, but your boots, your crampons, your rope, your backpack, all those things will essentially almost last forever. And so when you don't find any of those things, it's a major mystery. You know, just a, a matter of a few weeks ago, I read a newspaper article um, where they actually one of these things was solved. And um, uh, a gentleman went missing near Multnomah Falls and they found they found his remains. Um, and I think I don't remember when he went missing, the 90s or 2000s or something. But they uh, figured out who he was finally after all these years because they found his body a long time ago. And they, the, the, the technology is just catching up to help them identify him. And then um, there was another woman on the mountain that was recently recently found as well. So uh, along those lines, since occasionally these things are, you know, solved, I guess, you know, these, these, these cold cases, um, do you do any follow-up or, or do you have any plans for publication for any of the, um, the successful, you know, uh, finds or identifications or the, the found people, you know, instead of missing 411, it can be like found 411. You know, unfortunately there aren't many people that we write about that are found and it could it could lie in the profile points that we identify on these cases. When, what are profile points for, for me and my, our listeners who may not know? Sure. So when I first started out, I, I was told by a couple of park rangers, hey, there's been a bunch of disappearances at parks we've worked at in the past. These two people came together and said, hey, you know what? I had unusual disappearances at my park. And this guy, this other person said, yeah, so did I. And they, they started working together at another park and they started comparing notes and they said, well, let's do a Freedom of Information Act and find out. So they filed and they, they couldn't find or get the reports from their own park service. That upset them and they started digging deeper. They found out that that first seven or 10 days after a disappearance, there's a lot of press. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of search. And then all of a sudden, bam, there's nothing. And they said, hey, somebody ought to be looking into this. And they had read some of my other books and they said they saw me at the park doing some peripheral research on another topic. And they said, hey, you know, you ought to be looking into this. And both of them talked to me at different times. And that's kind of how it all got started. But when you look at 100 missing person reports, maybe a couple things will come out and hit you. You look at a thousand. And then I started to have stacks of reports in my living room that represented different things that I thought were odd. The biggest stack right off the top were people that were searched for and the canines couldn't pick up a scent. And as someone who worked on the SWAT team at San Jose and had the canine unit attached to our team, I can tell you that those dogs, I, I honestly cannot remember ever them not picking up a scent and finding the suspect. So the scent of a dog is keen and that's why they're used. So when you, I started to read that these dogs, some of the dogs would walk down the trail, do a circle, come back and sit at the feet of the, of the master, or walk down the trail, come down and even cower behind the master. Unusual behavior. And they knew that this victim had walked down this trail. So the dog acting in that manner do, did not make any sense. So that was the first key for me that something odd was going on because that is not normal. Now, from that, I started to add other things. There was seemingly an odd association between when the person disappeared or when the search and rescue happened and was undertaken and bad weather inundated and interrupted the search 
or had some major impact on the search and rescue. And I call those weather-related incidents. And they happen a lot. And then another one was they bring professional trackers to the scene. And we're talking about these, these men and women would baffle you. You and I couldn't figure out that a person walked through this patch of greenery, but they could tell you how many hours ago they did and possibly how much they weighed. And, and these trackers couldn't find any tracks leaving the area where they knew that these people were at. So those were a couple. Then another one was a lot of these are water-related, and that means that in very close proximity to where they disappeared or where they were eventually found, they were in, near, or very close to water. And yeah, there's a lot of water in our existence, but this, this was almost obscenely obvious. Another one was, if the person was found, the person was usually found in an area that had been previously searched by search and rescue, sometimes as much as 20 or 30 times. And what I mean by that is I wrote a story where this little boy disappeared. I think he was seven or eight years old. They searched for him for eight or nine days. And on the ninth day, search and rescue is leaving their camp and they're going out on a trail to an area and a tree had fallen across the trail. And on top of the tree was this little boy sleeping. And that, that, was, that was odd. But that's, that's a real wild example of how some people are found in these areas that have been previously searched. A lot of times if the person's found and they're alive, they can't remember how they disappeared, where they went, how, how much they've walked, or any of those associated type of things. And then in my third book, I wrote an extensive section of, about data that we were accumulating. And it had to do with young children. And to make the point, if I told you, hey, you know, uh, we found Bobo and he was six miles from where we last saw him and he was 1,500 feet uphill. May not mean a lot to a lot of people because hey, he's a healthy adult. He walked that far, makes a lot of sense. But if I told you that a 18 month old or two year old little boy was found six miles away and 3,000 feet uphill, anybody who's a parent is going to know, uh, I don't think so. Or how did that child get to that distance? So there was a graph that we designed called uh, distance traveled and elevation attained. And you're going to you see these wild numbers for these little kids. And if you spend time around little kids, you know, that is not happening. And this was in a wilderness area. So there were no roads. There, there was no way for this person to get manipulated up to that location logically. So these are all common threads no matter where? Or do some of these um, strange things about certain cases happen more frequently in certain areas? So part of this also was when I was a policeman and we had a series of crimes, we'd take a map of the city and we'd put pins in where, say, robberies were happening. And you could send this information to a profiling unit of the FBI and they could tell where probable-wise the next robbery would occur or where the suspect lived. Now, you take that profiling idea from the FBI, and that is exactly what I'm doing with these missing people. We're profiling this. And I started to put pins in a map of the United States, and because I, I started to remember, hmm, you know, somebody had a lot of people, uh, you know, on that big stack over there, and Great Smoky Mountain National Park had a lot, and 
you know, Mount Adams had a few. And so I'd start putting these pins in and son of a gun, if these clusters started to develop and the more I did the work, the more I figured out that, hey, there, there's this clustering effect to these disappearances and, and certain areas. The biggest cluster of missing people in the world that match these profiles is Yosemite National Park. And there's a line of clusters that go up the Sierras, right through the Cascades, all the way up into British Columbia, up over the top of Montana and Idaho, and then back down through uh, Wyoming and Colorado. And then there's a big gap of very, very few people missing in eastern Oregon and in Nevada. And then north through south, from North Dakota, South Dakota, Kansas, that stretch going all the way through to Texas, right through the middle of the U.S., there's hardly anybody missing. And then as you push east, all the way around the Great Lakes, there's clusters of missing people. All the way up and down the Appalachian Trail, there's missing people. Group of people missing in Alaska, three or four people missing in Hawaii, but altogether, there's 62 clusters of identified missing people in North America. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso, and Satellites, and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. Like, well, you have 10 points, right, Dave? Like, you're talking about, like, like elevate, like, that you have to match a certain amount of criteria, right? Like, at least six of the criteria. So, yeah, you touched on some others. Like another one is granite. In the area where these people disappear, there seems to be a high proliferation of granite. Well, where's the biggest mass of granite in the world? Yosemite. So what's the relationship between granite and missing people? That's one. Another one is, just like you said, Bobo, um, some type of injury or disability. And it seems as though that an unusual number of these people have an illness uh, or disability or some congenital disease that we don't, from looking at them, you may not even know. And then the most fascinating one to me is both ends of the intellectual or physical scale. Like there's some people that have Alzheimer's disease or dementia, and those people disappear and they aren't found. And these aren't very healthy people. So the thought that they could walk miles and miles and miles doesn't make a lot of sense or that they're going to lose their scent doesn't make sense. Now, let's take the other end of that scale. Super, super smart people have disappeared. I know of three cases of physicists that have disappeared in North America and have never been found. And they're all from Germany. The um, the clusters that you've identified, um, it sounds like they've been done on sheer numbers, um, which is a great place to start. But have you calibrated the data, kind of like what they're doing with COVID, like cases per 100,000, you know, like that kind of thing? Have you calibrated the – or uh, calibrated probably isn't even the right term. I, I, I'm not a st statistician. I just don't like statistics. It, it really turned me off when I was in college. But anyway, uh, have, have you um, normalized it? Perhaps that's the term, like per – capita or something like that? Um, and, and have you found the patterns hold? So for certain, 
I am not saying that this is a frequent event. And in fact, I've told people that I go into national parks all the time, and I encourage you to too. It's a very abnormal event what happens. And I'm not saying that the numbers reflect a higher incidence in these areas. I'm just telling you from pure number sense, those are the biggest places where these people with these profiles have disappeared. Yeah, so certainly Yosemite is one of the highest visited national. I don't, I don't have the statistics here, but it has to be one of the highest visited national parks, um, and Smoky Mountain as well. There might be an interesting avenue of, of inquiry as well. But, um, but the the granite thing is mind boggling. Like, what in the world does that have to do with anything? You got to wonder, right? That's probably the big, is that the biggest common denominator, Dave? Do you think is the granite? No, the, by far the biggest one is the canines bringing it, bringing them in, and them not being able to pick up a scent. Well, I'll tell you, Dave, your books scare the hell out of me. You know, they, they really do. Um, I don't I, I, I've I thumbed through the Western one because I live here, you know, and I think that's cool. But it's, they scare the hell out of me. The other ones I don't want to touch just because I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I know they're good books, but for the same reason, I didn't watch Blair Witch for a long, long time. It, it took me like 15 years to watch Blair Witch or 13 years or something because I go camping alone a lot. You know, I go camping alone a lot. And it's like the last thing I need to think about is, you know, some witch trying to get me out there or something and knocking around the camp and stuff or let alone getting lost or something. Um, so so what would you say to someone like me who does prefer to go camping alone? Um, is this something that like you just go watch, watch your back or don't worry about it or somewhere in between? So one of the things I do at the conferences is I talk about hiker safety. I mean, when you're on the trail, what do you do? One of the first things that pe- most people don't do is tell someone where you're going and when you're going to be out and tell somebody who you really trust. Because if Cliff says he's going to be back Sunday at six and Sunday night at 11 o'clock, you're not back, that friend better be on the phone call and search and rescue. That's the kind of friend you need to tell. And uh, hey, I'm like you, Cliff. I love the solitude of going out hiking by myself. The quiet, peaceful nature of our woods are great. But It's a very rare occurrence when two people disappear at the same time. I have a few of those cases, but it's very rare. Uh, I wrote a book called Missing 411 Hunters, and it's, it's a very odd conundrum because I can't tell you the number of stories where two hunters go out in the woods and one of the people says, I don't feel good. I'm going back to the car. I call that point of separation, another profile point. And it's at that point of separation, something happens. The person going back to the car who doesn't feel good, something happens. I can't explain it. I can't explain why they don't feel good. I can't explain what it is. But that's that point where something happens and they disappear. And in that hunter's book, you got to think about, okay, the people are armed, number one. Number two, most people hunt in a similar area, sometimes a lifetime area where they've gone forever. And so they know the area. The idea that they're getting lost doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, one big thing, and I'll say this in your show and I'll probably say it again, everybody who goes out and hikes alone should be carrying a personal locator beacon. It's something that's not talked about a lot in hiking circles. It's foolish it isn't. It'll be my biggest mission in life to get everybody in the world to carry one when they're in the woods. And what it is, it's a device costs about $200, $250, size of a cell phone. And when you activate it, it sends a message up to a satellite. 
And that satellite sends it to the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration that there's an emergency and somebody needs help. They'll immediately call the search and rescue for that jurisdiction where that location's uh, emanating from, and they can find you within 10 feet. If people were carrying these, 99% of the cases that I work probably wouldn't even exist. People, because you'd written those Bigfoot books first, like Hoopa and the Tribal Bigfoot. And a lot of people are familiar with that, our listeners would be. And so they assumed when you did this, everyone goes, why wouldn't you just come out and say it's it's a Bigfoot doing all this? And and I'm talking to you um, before, you were saying, like, you think very few of them would even be related to that now after you do a lot more investigation, right? Straight fact. I, I don't know how many thousands of books I've sold, but I get I get probably, I don't know, 100 emails a day. And I, I try to read every one. And I swear to you guys, I have never had a reader read all of my books and say that they understand what is happening. And as if people don't know, so I've been a MUFON investigator for the Mutual UFO Network. I've written a series of Bigfoot books. I've been the keynote speaker at the MUFON annual symposium. So I'm pretty well attuned with all these different areas. And I, I get, I've got fans from a lot of different regions of uh, unusual research arenas. And so I, I think I've got it all covered. And I've never had anyone who's read all those books and said, yeah, I understand what's happening after reading them. Yeah, because you always said that. And people thought you were just trying to, like, you know, be evasive or whatever. But it's like you just didn't know. Like, you don't know. No one knows. Well, how could anybody know? Because there's so many cases. I think it would be silly to think that one thing would be responsible for all of them. I mean, or what, what are your thoughts on that, Dave? I mean, the, the, the root causes, of the, there must be a dozen root causes of these things, no matter how weird the causes are. The, the one thing that kind of puts a twist on that in my mind is that they do fit this profile, though. And... I mean, I was watching, I forgot what show I was watching, Cliff, but you were up in Alaska walking around and there's a place that has a lot of very unusual disappearances over the years. I don't know if you've heard about them when you were up there. Well, no, I didn't hear, I, I wasn't looking into it. I heard Lake Monster stuff and Bigfoot stuff because uh, that was a travel channel show called uh, the Alaska Triangle or something like that. And that's what they hired me to go look into. Um, and where I was, I, think I was in a fishing village called Kakanak about 125 people lived there. So I didn't get, I didn't hear about anything like that, but I mean, it's Alaska. You, you walk too far in any direction, you're going to go missing. You know, the, um, the one thing like a bubble was bringing up the Hoopa project and tribal Bigfoot. I'm big on native Americans. I, I think that, uh, we are amiss if we aren't listening more to those elders and their stories, because I think we can learn a lot from them. And in fact, those two books have almost solely to do with Native American issues on their reservation involving unusual occurrences. And heck, one of my best friends is Harvey Pratt, a Cheyenne Arapaho Native American chief. And he and I routinely talk about these kind of things. And Harvey tells a story that when he was a little boy and they would go camp out in the woods, that his elders and his mom would ever would always tell him, you never walk away from the glow of the campfire. You always stay close at night. And, and why did they say that? Because there were things in the woods that could do harm to you and could take you. Yeah, besides just bears and mountain lions, wolves, other things. Yeah, no, that's, 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 uh, you see that with all the tribes throughout all of North America. 
know, when Bobo and I were filming uh, the that Alberta episode, season what one or probably season two, I'm guessing, um, when we had Todd Standing as we looked into his stuff or whatever, we were up in Alberta and we were talking to what was, what was the tribe there, the Stony Nakotas, if I remember right. Yeah. You, well, anyway, uh, uh, he was an elder for the Stony Nakotas, and he told us that. Um, he got too far from where he was supposed to be. And the little people came and were coaxing him into like their underground tunnels and stuff. And then his family saved him at the last minute before he went underground with the little people, you know, the stick Indians or whatever the local name is for them up there. Um, have you run across uh, potential abductions or any signs or anything like that of the little people, not, not Sasquatches, of course, but I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. So again, doing the research on those other two books, in Hoopa, they talked about them routinely. And then when we went to the Midwest and talked to tribes around Oklahoma, again, that topic was something that was brought up. See, the thing was, is that if you had somebody who validated you as an honest person and could be trusted, then they'd open up to you. And because I was with Harvey or because I, I knew some tribal elders in Hoopa, that door was open to me right away. So I, there was no time to break things down. I heard about them, like, just like you and I were talking right now. There was no, no hesitation. When we were filming in Alaska, um, the second time we went up there, uh, I interviewed a couple that saw a Sasquatch on the road or whatever. Um, he was native and his uh, wife was um, white, Caucasian. And um, after, you know, after we did the filming and, you know, they're doing whatever they do with film, you know, producers and stuff like that. Um, I was talking to the witnesses and just kind of shooting the poop with them and talk and asking, getting more information about the sighting from them. And our topic of conversation went off to little people and both of them had seen a, a little person. It was a two person sighting of, of a little person. Um, and they described it, of course, as a, a two and a half, three foot tall, uh, indigenous looking person wearing full native garb, traditional native garb and stuff. But that was the first and only sighting to this day that I've ever pulled of um, not only an indigenous person seeing one, but a white person seeing the same one, like a two person sighting. And one of them was outside the culture that I normally hear this from. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. And I definitely think there's something to it. I don't know what that is. I don't know where the ecological niche is. But, you know, the universe is weirder than I think. That's for sure. You know, well, Bobo, haven't you heard the stories of little people around Whitechpeck and Hoopa? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've never had anything personally happen with them or seen anything, any any sign of them. But I've heard it too many times from too many people like, yeah, they're, they're there. I mean, we heard it in the Klamath tribe up in southeast Oregon. But, Dave, you don't think it's like little people and, and like terrestrial animals that are causing or terrestrial beings that are causing this. It, it seems to be more like a. Uh, parallel universe thing, right? Okay, you brought up a good point. So people who really don't know much about the research will tend to think, okay, maybe it's predation. Maybe it's a bear, mountain lion, whatever. So one of the things that search and rescue does is when they go out, they'll vet out that as a possibility. And if it still is a possibility, we won't work the case. Now, one of the things I talk about in conferences is I ask the audience, well, how many uh, fatal mountain lion attacks in North America in the last 100 years? Uh, that's, people say 150, 250, 15. 15 in North America in 100 years. It's very, very rare. And uh, no, that that is not. 
that's not an issue when when we're talking about my work. Um, in certain areas, I mean, heck, where I live now, you better have your head on a swivel sometimes in some areas because of grizzly bear, and they will eat you. So, no, I am concerned about that. But if you're attacked by a grizzly bear, it's going to be a gruy, gruesome scene. And again, if there's any evidence of that, I'll vet that out as well. So, animal predation, not an issue in my work. But I'm probably one of those guys that has a very open mind about what's happening. And I, I've tried not to be closed-minded about what, what could occur. And I think that's led me down the road to many discoveries that I, I never would have found otherwise. So, I mean, just sitting around talking to Bobo for an hour and a half when I interviewed him, we had a, we had a far-ranging conversation about all kinds of things. That's why we're called Bigfoot and Beyond, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it gets pretty beyond, Cliff, because... That's what I was saying. Like those who say that the you know like as they call it the woo. It, it's when you go to the Montana vortex, it changes your perception on stuff. I mean, it's Dave can tell you more about it. Uh, but like they've done measurements that uh, time changes. Like I know when you went to Mesa Verde with the those physicists or whatever those scientists were, and you guys measured uh, an anomaly in the time. Like I think it was six hundredths of a second. But at the Montana vortex. They were getting some huge readings. Like the, was it the Skeptical Society was there? Don't remember which group it was, but yeah, they've had they've had some super smart people out there to look at it, and they they've been stumped. Uh, there's something about that area that we just don't understand, and uh, until you actually see it for your eyes, <laughs> like when we were out there walking Bobo through it, it was it's fun taking somebody through who's never gone through to see their reaction to what's happening. We'll have to get those guys on the podcast. Yeah, but it's something you got to see. I mean, you can hear about it and even see it on video. It's like, well, it's just some trick of the camera or something. But when you're there with no cameras, no artificial lighting, you're outside and you're on a, he's got a, he's got a leveling, like a contractor's level, laying it down on the ground. So it's, it's even, you're sitting on a six foot board. It's, you know, like a two by a 12 or something on the ground and right bisecting it is one of the, the main power lines of this vortex. Dude, I would walk on one side because I'm a few inches taller than Dave. What are you, Dave, like about six foot? Yeah, and I'm like six three, so I'd be I'd be six inches taller or seven inches taller on one side. Then we'd switch sides, and he'd be like an inch or two taller than me on a level ground. Well, the, how does um, the, the vortex or any of these uh, strange anomalous places – because there's, there's, I'm sure, I'm certain that the Montana one isn't the only one. I don't know much about these things, but uh, um, are there any correlations between your missing persons work um, and and these weird places, you know, where meridians cross and all that sort of stuff? Are there any correlations there? So when I was doing uh, this show called Vanished for the History Channel, Prometheus, the same ones who do Ancient Aliens and Oak Island, they're the ones that were doing the show. So I was working with them for almost six months. And they sent me off to the University of Wisconsin. I met with this physicist named John Brandenburg. And we were talking about vortexes and uh, these parallel universes and things and how they can be manipulated and how they can be used. And he said, Dave, this is a real phenomenon. And there, there are physicists all over the world that are trying to understand how these things could be manipulated to our benefit. And I was telling him a story that had been told to me by one of my readers and this guy was hunting at like 10,000 feet in Colorado. 
and he had grass up to about his knees and he's walking through this field. And he said, all of a sudden he looked ahead of him, you know, like 20, 30 yards. And there was like a cloud bank right there. And he, he kind of kept staring at it. He said, and he, as he walked closer to it, it wasn't moving. It was stationary. And he said, he walked right up to it and he goes, there was something wrong with it. And he said, he stopped and he picked up one foot and he put his foot in and he said it would, would, would remind you of putting your foot through a liquid mirror and your foot disappearing totally. And then he pulled his foot back out and everything was normal and the window or the mirror closed. And he said it scared the heck out of him. And he turned and he goes, I might have ran, but I got out of there as fast as I could. And what he said was, is that imagine if you're fat, dumb, and happy going down the trail with your head clo- head down and you just walked into that, what would happen? Yeah, I don't think I have a good answer for that one. So, the, and Brandenburg's point being is that he thought that these vortexes were manipulated at some level by something somewhere, and they opened and closed. And when they opened, you could come in. And when they closed, you would be gone. Now, there's a story that I wrote at Mesa Verde National Park for for this vanished episode where a man named Dale Staling disappeared. And um, the two days after he disappeared, two days after he disappeared, a reporter came to the park to interview the park superintendent about a peripheral issue. Didn't even know there was somebody missing. And there's this big rigmarole going on with this missing person. And the superintendent says, hey, come back in three or four hours, go walk the trail or something. I'm busy, but I, I will interview you after, after that period of time. So this woman doesn't know anything's going on, really, other than there's a lot of people. She goes out on the trail and she starts hiking. And she's out about two miles and she doesn't know it, but it's where this guy disappeared and they'd already searched it and then we're done for the day. And she's walking through this area and she hears a man calling for help. And she goes, I looked everywhere. I, I yelled back and I could hear this man saying, hey, I need help. I'm over here, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, there's nothing. So she goes straight back to the superintendent's office, goes in and there's the chief ranger and the superintendent. And she's she's worried. She says, hey, somebody's out there and needs help. And they go, what are you talking about? She explains where she's at. She explains what she hears. The chief ranger says, hey, that's the same thing that another hiker said at the same location yesterday. And we sent people out and we sent the dogs out. And they couldn't find anything. Now, that story and those facts are not in that vanished episode. And the producers and the directors and I had a huge fight with the owner of Prometheus to get that story in exactly how it factually occurred. And he wouldn't put it in because he thought it made the National Park Service look bad. In reality, I thought it made them look good because they were responsive and they looked twice. They sent people out again. It wasn't found. And there are those stories where supposedly if you're in this portal kind of thing that you may not even know you're in the portal at the time you're there. I've had people, I probably had 50 people write to me and said, Hey, I've owned this piece of property for 50 years. And just one day I'm walking down the piece of property and all of a sudden I'm in an area I've never even seen before. And they were lost for like 45 minutes or an hour. And then all of a sudden they popped out at a place they thought, they knew again, and they they found their way back. I've had that story told to me over and over and over again. 
So is there something to just walking into something like this and not knowing you're walking into it? And hopefully you can walk your way out of it. I don't know. Did you, uh, was there a report of disembodied voices in a similar scene in Australia? Very similar there. I, in fact, I made a video about this. I have 90 plus videos. When I was in Australia, I made three of them. There was a woman that disappeared and the search and rescue were all over it, looking for this and that. And there, from this lookout kind of area, you could look down over this valley where she disappeared. And there were people up there and they could hear her calling for help from the valley. But when they put FLIR up or when they tried to isolate where this voice came from, they couldn't find her. And she was never found. She still hasn't been found. Yet they knew the area she was in, supposedly. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. So this is a, a worldwide phenomenon to some degree, but uh, look, I mean, I'm, I'm putting out your books today. I don't see a worldwide book yet. I, I mean, there's Canada, and then there's all sorts of regions, the United States, and then some other common threads like land, area, water, et cetera. Um, do you get, how many international reports do you get, and what percentage of those would you say match your criteria? So in Missing 411 North America and Beyond, Ah, that one, right. Yeah, so that one I have a lot more. And in fact, in the back of almost every one of the other books, there's an international section. And I've written about 16 other countries besides the U.S. and Canada. And I get I get international cases almost every day from somewhere about something. And some of them have been absolutely baffling. And they they fit this profile we're talking about to a T. Uh, there's a ton of them in Australia, New Zealand, some in Spain. The UK has a lot of cases. Uh, obviously, Canada has a ton. Uh, British Columbia, specifically southern British Columbia, has a ton of these cases. Now, you mentioned earlier um, that you have a couple reports of uh, two people going missing at the same time. What's the largest group of people that have gone missing at the same time that, you, that you've investigated personally? There might be one incident of... One time, three kids disappeared, but I would say for sure I have probably five or six cases where two people did disappear. And the oddest thing is, is that in most of the time, if those two people are found, they're found together, which makes no sense at all because people do not die on the same timeline. People die at different intervals. And if one person does die, you know, there's no reason to stay with that person. You go seek help and, uh, it, it, it's a baffling scenario when you look at it. So two corpses are found at the same place, same location. Yep. There's a there's an incident in New Mexico where a, a daughter, like she was, I think, 18 or 19, and her dad disappeared in this park in northwest New Mexico. And they searched and searched and searched and never found him. Like three or four years later, they're found together next to this giant boulder, granite boulder in this park. And they said, search rescue people said, we were all over this. I don't know how we could have missed this. Same sort of scenario. Never could determine the cause of death. And there's, there's another thing. If the people are found, many times they, the coroners can't determine the cause of death. The first time I started to write about this is in a book called Missing 411, A Sobering Coincidence. And it dealt with 
people who disappeared and were found in water. And right away, you're going to think, oh, yeah, you know, they just drowned. Uh, not so easy. When men drown, they're usually found in water face down. Women are found face up. Except in the stories I write about, they're just reversed. And in these stories, a lot of times there's no inclination that the people ever went to water. There's no way that they tracked them to water. Nobody can understand how they ever got there, how they ever would have been there. And normally they're missing some piece of clothing or shoes. In one, one incident I write about, there was a, uh, a young man. He was a, like an All-American soccer player at a party outside of uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. He disappears at a, like 11 o'clock at this party. The next day they start searching and through backyards of nearby residences, they found a pair of his socks. They found, I'm, I'm sorry, a shirt. Uh, they found a Kleenex. They found other things belonging to him straddled through these backyards. And then five days later, his body uh, floats up at a nearby golf course pond. And it had rained for the whole previous week. Well, the detectives that pulled his body out noticed that he's missing shoes. And the detective said, well, something's weird here because his socks are absolutely clean. If he walked into this pond, they'd have to be muddy because he would have had to have walked through all this mud to get here. And they were perfectly clean. And that's, that's really one of the first time where it was identified that something unusual is happening in these cases because the person didn't get there on their own free will. Yeah. One story that really hit close home to me, Dave, was that 22 year old young man that was riding a mountain bike, uh, like all around up the West coast. And he parked his bike and took off his, uh, riding gear and folded it all neatly and parked his bike up there off the Soul Duck river on the North, uh, Olympic peninsula in Washington. And then they found the guy, Months later, through like 10-foot snowdrifts, like 12 miles away or something. Yeah, and it's funny because uh, Flippy, the guy who, uh, he worked on Finding Bigfoot with us for a few years and camera guy, he did the solo camp trips after Tyler. And he, he said he was never convinced Bigfoot was real until that night. We heard the strangest vocalizations I've ever heard. It sounded like a, a old... I don't know why I picture this, like an old Wildlands firefighting truck, like a 1940s or some big four-wheel drive one, grinding its gears and its belts all whining super. I mean, it sounded super mechanical. It sounded like metal tearing in half. And then it morphed into like these screaming, roaring howls. And it was exactly where that kid, with his bike and clothes were found. And this was a, a few months before that. Then they found his body. How far, what was the details on that again? That was a pretty amazing one. So luckily, I know this case pretty well. Jacob Gray was his name. Yeah. That happened April 5th, 2017. He was 22 years old. His dad actually uh, contacted me. Uh, his brother was a pilot in the Coast Guard, flew helicopters. And the Grays had permission from the Coast Guard to fly missions over the park to look for Jacob. And you know the Park Service said, no, you can't fly over our park. What was their reasoning for that? They didn't give one. Oh, it's because of the bird breeding, you know, the birds nesting and all that kind of stuff. They they ban all air traffic. Well, the thing is, is that those helicopters, they can fly at like two or 3,000 feet pretty high and still get a FLIR reading. So, but, you know, 
Anyhow, uh, Jacob, yeah, disappeared, and he was found thousands and thousands of feet, miles and miles away, and it made no sense at all. But Olympics, one of those places where I've written about a lot of cases very similar to this that don't make any sense. I mean, there, there's a couple people that are still missing in there that have never been found. Uh, in Jacob's case, they originally thought because his bike was next to the river, they were, they were like 90% certain that he went into the river. He slipped and fell into the river. And so they searched that thing upside down and backwards. Of course, he wasn't in there. And uh, there was no real reason why he would stash all of his stuff right next to that tree and then take off on a giant hike into the mountains where the weather was horrific. So it doesn't make any sense. You know, another spot um, that I live very close to that I hear weird things, including people going missing out of, um, and certainly you must have heard about something out of here, I'm guessing at least, I could be incorrect, are the uh, the lava beds outside of Trout Lake, Washington and Gifford Pinchot National Forest. That's a creepy place. Compasses don't work in a lot of the area because of iron deposits in the ground, I presume. And people go missing there. And even when they're walking in, in like single file lines and like that, or, you know, the guy's 13 feet, 15 feet away from the rest of his party, they turn around and he's not there all of a sudden. Um, what, what, do you, what have you heard, if anything, about the lava beds in that area? You know, Tom Powell had a uh, fellow teacher's boyfriend disappear there. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. That's probably one of the stories I'm listening. I, I'm, I'm thinking of right now, actually. Yeah, no, that's that's a pretty dangerous place for whatever reason. And uh, people say, well, maybe they fell into a tube, or you got to remember those canines can track you right to a tube. And if you're deceased, let's say for a month, then they put what's called cadaver dogs in there, and those cadaver dogs have a phenomenal sense of smell. I'm talking miles away, they can pick up the human decaying flesh. They can even pick up decaying flesh underwater by the bubbles that come up. So they'll put a dog in a boat over an area where they think there might be a body, and it, that dog will hit on the area where the body is, and those bubbles are coming up. So, yeah, that, that area cliff is it's a, pretty, it's a pretty neat area. I've hiked through it. Have you ever been in there? Oh, yeah. You know, I've been around the outskirts of it. I haven't gone over the whole thing or anything, but I've definitely camped around the outside of it and, you know, doing Bigfoot stuff because I'm certain the Sasquatches are in that general area as well. Um, too many reports come out of there. So, yeah, it's, it's weird, though, just because, uh, you know, the, the ground's almost like it's made out of razor wire. You know, if you fall down, you're going to scratch yourself all to hell, basically, because of the lava rock. And there are little chasms and, and things to fall into and tubes. And it's a very dangerous area. You know, it, it really is. A lot of people um, get lost either temporarily or forever in that area. That's true. As you go further north, um, Mount Rainier National Park, there's another place where a lot of people have disappeared. And I'm not talking about mountain climbing type disappearances. I'm talking about people hiking down around the base of the mountain. Something strange about that area as well. There's one story, I don't write about climbers very often, but there's there's a famous story that I've had many people tell me about, so I looked into it, and there was a guy who summited Rainier, I think, 18 different times. He was considered one of the best climbers in the world on that mountain, knew it like the back of his hand, and uh, he was climbing with three other guys, just like a rec rec recreational jaunt, and uh, he was... He, took, he yelled up, okay, I'm on belay. So he clicked into his carabiner onto his uh, straps and he was coming up and the guy said he could feel light tension. And he said, all of a sudden, 
all of a sudden, everything goes limp. The rope, rope goes limp. And so they pull on it. And now the carabiner is unattached. And there's nothing at the end. And they yell down to this guy and he's no answer. So the guys go back down and they don't find anything. And so they searched for a day and they found his pack in an area where they thought it'd be, but they didn't find him and they didn't find anything else. So the Mount Rainier emergency team, response team, ranger team comes up there. They spent four days searching everything in that area, including if he fell, he wouldn't have fallen far because there was a pad there beneath where he started. It made no sense at all. He was never found. Bizarre. Totally bizarre. Hey, Dave, did you ever look into that case of that uh, young boy on the Macaw Reservation? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, his dad was the head of the fire department up there. I know his name was Herta, H-E-R-T-A. And uh, he was with some family right at the point. And he says, hey, you guys go that way. I'll go this way. So there's a zigzag trail up to the road. Family got up there and he never made it up. Family went back down the trail. He wasn't there. There was really no place to go because there was a beach down there. And there was a massive search. And his grandpa came in and who was the head of the fire department searched there for like two weeks, nothing. The weirdest thing is if you go right across the Juan de Fuca Straits there onto the island, there's a boy missing on the other side in Tofino under very similar circumstances. Yeah, because I spent a couple of days hecking around that area where the boy disappeared. And uh, man, my hair was up in my neck, you know, going up and down there. I was like, how could he disappear? Because there was family members in front and behind him and he just was gone. Yeah, Dwight Herda, that was his name. That was quite a few years ago. Yeah. That area out there is is pretty remote, and there's not a lot going on. And I, I get people all the time saying, oh, you know, where the kid was abducted. In that scenario, I don't think the kid could have been abducted. And if some, if it was a human abduction, that, that person had a lot of guts because there were people all around there. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tourism spot. I've been out there as well, and there were had there had to be 30 people on the trail when I was walking out there. Yeah. Yeah, like a lot of times they'll find the persons are missing, say, 10 days, and then they – find the body and it appears they've only been dead for one or two days. And it's in an area they've already searched before. And the person is like laying naked on the trail or something. You've had some stories like that too, right? Yeah. And that's, that's troublesome. Uh, when I've written about things like this, this one person is the head of the coroner's office of one of the largest coroner's divisions in the United States. If I said the jurisdiction, you guys would say, Oh yeah, that's huge. So this person asked to meet with me because they knew I was traveling. So we meet at this hotel and we talk for like three or four hours. And what this person says is, Dave, you know, when you write in the books about unknown cause of death or people, you know, supposedly were dead for five days, but they've, it's only, we can only show they've been dead for a day. I said, yeah. And this person goes, you know, I have a whole staff of coroners that over the years, they've come, come to me with these type of cases. And they're completely stumped. And she said, you know, we're scientists. We're, we're people that are supposed to be able to figure this out. And when we can't figure out a cause of death, it bothers the hell out of us. And we have meetings where four or five different physicians that are available will all sit around and brainstorm about what are we missing? And they said, there's something happening that we don't understand. 
And they said, hey, I'll deny if I ever said this, but I wanted to hear some other things from you because you've looked at it from 50,000 feet. I'm looking at it from our own little jurisdiction here where we get, you know, 50 cases a day or whatever. And they said, but, you know, you're looking at it from all over the world. So you're seeing these cases all the time. I said, yeah. And they said, well, we what they tried to do is they tried to get me as a keynote speaker at this national coroner's conference to talk about this exact thing, because they were saying that it's people are reluctant to talk about it, but it's something that they run into too often. That's weird. That's the one I remember reading that in some of your books about that. Like it's just, it's, it seems like they get sucked up in the air and just drop back down. Cause sometimes like they have crushed skulls, like that is big crushing injuries. Like what's, is there any pattern to that? Like, cause sometimes it seems like they're untouched. They have injuries that are consistent with blunt force, but that could be dropped on the ground. That could be hit with a baseball bat. But in all of these injuries, the coroners will come back and they'll say, there doesn't appear to be any act of violence against the people. Say, if you were hit with a hammer, there's the head of the hammer in your skull. Or if you're hit with a baseball bat, there's that baseball bat indentation in you. In here, they can usually rectify it and say, oh, that was when they fell on this rock or something. They're, they're not saying it's any human-to-human violence. Yeah. How, how often do you find, like, the, when, they find them, when they find the bodies later, like, that they have these, like, you know, crushing uh, blunt force trauma? So the weirdest one I've ever written about was in Vermont. And this is an old story. It's from, like, the 30s or 40s. And this outfitter disappeared and they went out and they found his body and he was dead and he was fully dressed and his rifle was laying there and there's like four rounds expended and there's a big, huge scuffle like in the ground, but there's just this person dead. And they, they went and they did the autopsy and they said that they found bare hair all over his body and that this is the part that's completely BS. They said that it was obvious that the bear strangled him, suffocated him, and broke his ribs and killed him. And I, I went out and I found two bear experts and I said, "Have you? is there any evidence that a bear can, can suffocate you with its legs or its arms and crush you? They said, heck no. Well, which begs the question, um, is there a, any direct connection? Are you, are you confident in any way that at least some or any of these reports are Sasquatch related? Hey, I'm going to be honest. I don't know. Fair enough. Some of them look like it, though, kind of, wouldn't you say? You know, a lot of weird stuff in our world. And you think about all the people out there who think that the Sasquatch topic is just for buffoons. And you start doing these leaps of faith where you say, oh, you know, maybe they did this or maybe they did that. What I tell people that are the hosts on interview shows is that, hey, tomorrow I could get a family that's missing their 20-year-old son and they're in desperate need of some assistance. And the first thing they turn on is Dave Politis saying that, oh, you know, some Sasquatch or Bigfoot killed somebody. All of a sudden in their mind, I might have lose all my credibility. And, and so I kind of walked this fine line on a fence between 
you know, trying to make sure that I keep myself available to all those people out there who really know nothing about the topic we may know a lot about, but it, it doesn't do me any good to go out and leap and, and say something like that when there's really no evidence that it's happened. Well, Dave, you've given us a lot to think about because um, I'm certainly going to lose a lot of sleep about everything I've heard today. I'll be laying awake in my bed worrying about my next trip to the woods for several weeks now. So thank you for that. Um, and, and But Dave, your stories are fascinating. It, it truly is a mystery, and it's one of these mysteries in our own backyard. Um, and I'm not the only person that wants to hear about this. So where can people go to learn more about your your, your research and what you've been discovering? So I post almost daily on my Twitter account, David Politis at Can Am Missing. Uh, the YouTube uh, channel is Can Am Missing Project, and the website is canammissing.com. And uh, almost daily, something's posted on one of those locations. And follow us. Uh, you'll get an education with time. And I post a couple of videos every week, and from those, you'll glean a lot that uh, hopefully will help you when you go out in your hikes. And your videos are available for free now. Free, anybody can watch them. Where can they do that? So the, the two documentaries are free right now on YouTube movies, Missing 411 and Missing 411 The Hunted. Obviously, the our YouTube channel, that's free. Got 90 videos on that. So uh, watch the movies. And uh, they're about an hour and a half long each, and they've been both pretty highly rated. So uh, have some fun with them. Yeah, they're they're awesome, and gosh, you have a you have a library of books that you can pick up as well. Um, and I, I know that the best place to get them is directly from you at the website, which is North America. Or no, no, it's NA Bigfoot. Sir, what, what, wait, your website? What is it? I always look it up by name. So yeah, the uh, the Bigfoot site is NA Bigfoot Search, and you can get our books. Obviously, if you're in Oregon or Washington, just go by Cliff's place and uh, help him out and buy the books there. There you go. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> we, we have a lot. I, I have several people who come in and ask me, have you got the new uh, Missing 411 books yet? I go, no, not yet. We're working on it. We, I, you know, COVID's, you know, ravaging our business and we're not doing a good job here. But no, we just got a new order. So we have a lot of the books in. But I have several people that come to my shop specifically for your books and also to show support for the museum as well. So thank you for that, Dave, making your books available to us. Hey, my pleasure, Cliff. Now, Dave, thanks so much. It was great hanging with you last week, too. And uh, looking forward to getting back out there with you again. we got to meet up at the Vortex and get Cliff in on, on that and get him on board with what's happening in that realm. And, uh, yeah, just thanks for joining us. We appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you, Dave. It was very, very nice to talk to you. It always is. Well, thank you for uh, giving me an hour-and-a-half interview, Bobes. And uh, you can come over to my channel and watch that entertaining hour-and-a-half. All right. It was an hour and a half. I thought it was like a half hour interview. It was an hour and a half. Well, I did oh, say man. you have an elastic sense of time, Bobes. <laughs> cool. All right, Dave. Well, hopefully we see you soon. Good luck with all your projects. Thanks, guys. So, Bobo, score on that one, man. Get, getting Dave on our show. That's a, that's, a, that, that's a good headline for us, man. Thank you so much for, um, for – I don't know what you said to him. Thanks for working him over to get him on the show. <laughs> yeah, I know because he doesn't – it's not like he needs our exposure. He's already – very heavily exposed, but his, his uh, documentaries are great. His first books are the ones that really freak people out the most, like the, like where the Bigfoot books, you know, and that those had me freaked out. I was like, God, why haven't I read these things? You know, it's making me nervous when I go out. But then you think about the hundreds of millions of man hours that are spent in the woods by 
tens of millions of people every year. And it's so rare. Like you can't let it stop you from going out and enjoying yourself. Like you said, be prepared, carry the, you know, the GPS personal location beacon and, uh, you know, compass extra water and just be prepared. I mean, don't not enjoy yourselves. And, but yeah, it, it's really weird. And he has, he's such a, he's covered so much ground. Like if you start, if you followed him from the beginning till now, there's just so much information you get start getting lately into the quantum, you know, mechanics theory and time and space, you know, and the portals and the wormholes and possibilities. It's, it's just, I got, I was getting tongue tied, you know, cause there's so so much to talk about with him and he's such a well-educated guy and he, you know, intelligent and knows his stuff. And I was getting kind of tongue tied. Well, I will say this, he's given me a goal. Um, to never appear as a chapter in one of his books. So take us home, Bobes. Okay, folks, thanks for tuning in. Make sure you check out Dave's webpages and everything he's got going on. You'll find it interesting as hell. So until then, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 